I would like to talk about two things. First, I would like to talk about patience, and then I would like to introduce the practice of the four Brahma Viharas. So first, patience. I think this is a very important quality to cultivate, to consider, to reflect upon when we practice meditation, when we are on a retreat. Because I think actually our way of living nowadays, our modern automated way of living, where everything is very fast. You press the button, electricity comes on, you open the tab, the water is there. And in the very industrial society, things are at one level relatively easy, physically. So we're really used to fast food, instant coffee, even nowadays in Japan you get instant green tea which normally would take 30 minutes of a fancy ceremony now you can do it in uh, 30 seconds I don't know if you get the same uh, stillness in the 30 seconds but that's another matter and I think that actually has an influence on ourselves again it's back to the conditions having an influence on our own conditions and I think due to that, I think our degree of patience, we have very low threshold. And one of the things, we don't like to wait. Very interesting, we don't like to wait. Things, you know, we have very little kind of patience. When actually, this is something we require a lot of in meditation is patience. We need to give ourselves and other people the time, the space to develop at their own rhythm. Because actually what we are dealing with is not a machine. We are not a machine. We are these organic processes. And we're not trying to just, in a way, attain certain states. We're actually trying to transform, accept and transform the whole processes, the whole thing of what is going on with ourselves and our relationship. And that actually takes time. We can't, I know, I mean, sometimes you see this advertisement, you know, enlightenment and senses guaranteed in a weekend. I mean, you could try, but it seems to me it takes a little longer than that. <laughs> and so that's why, that for this reason, because in a way we are dealing with this whole, all these habits and perception and things that we have kind of accumulated over time. And so, you know, in order to kind of dissolve them, it's going to take time. In order to cultivate concentration, inquiry is going to take time. And so there we really need to have patience. And actually Atanta, a Thai master, said something I think very good, very interesting about this patience and practice. And that's what he says. Desire in practice can be a friend or a foe. At first, it spurs us to come and practice. We want to change things, to understand, to end suffering. But to, always desire, but to be always desiring something that has not yet arisen, to want things to be other than they are, just causes more suffering. So I think this points out that we have to be kind of careful of, again, the difference between aspiration, which is kind of, you know, encourage us to kind of go on the way, to continue on the way, an expectation which fix and say, I want this now to be different. And then if it's not different now, then you suffer. And so he's pointing out that you need, of course, aspiration to start you on the path. But after that, I think we need to have this kind and soft mind. 
But although the mind is steady, it's also kind and soft. The awareness is kind and soft. It is not harsh, it's not judging. So the awareness is not forcing, is not tensing you. It's kind of more like a resting. So that, that's why I think patience uh, in a way helps us there. I think helps us to have a kind and soft mind. And I know in, uh, when I was uh, used to, to be a nun and uh, translate for Master Cousin, when we were in America, we had, uh, I had to tell uh, all these Americans, often very wealthy, rich people, that they had to bow to him three times. There was all these people who wanted to see him, but I'm, I was the one who had to tell them, before you meet, when you meet him, before you speak, you have to bow all the way down to the ground three times. And I felt always a little embarrassed to do that. But the reason was not that he wanted them to put him up, you know, but he wanted them to prepare themselves. He wanted them to come with a mind which would be patient and not come with a mind, another then master, like another instant cup of coffee, let's get it and then move on to the next instant, then master or whatever. And it's kind of in a way it was trying to to slow down the hurrying mind, one this, one that, and then move on to the next thing. And it was the same when I was in, uh, in uh, the temple, whenever he used to call me. I mean, he, called me, he could call me for however trivial a reason, to sew a button or do, take pictures or whatever. Whenever I used to, to, to go to his room, I had to bow three times. And very often I used to go there, bow three times, and say, oh, what do you want now? And then he said, you did not bath properly, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> the body was there, but not the mind. So then I would stand up, and then I would go very slowly, very patiently, and then we could go on to do our business. And in a way, I think that's what patience, I think, is very important, because it will help us first to, to untangle the wanting mind, but also to slow down a little the hurrying mind. And also at that level, I also think we have to be careful because often we read all these books. I mean, now, I mean, I, I am culprit too. Uh, you know, there is all these books on Zen, Buddhism, Theravada, Vipassana, meditation. I mean, you know, they come out of our ears, these books. And what is interesting, a lot of the traditions claim that they are the fastest, the most direct route, or that they have the shortcut to enlightenment. And when we see this, we feel, wow, this is very attractive. I'm going to go for this, because it's fastest, shortcut, direct. You know, better than all this. Because then everybody else, you know, they choose everybody else to be gradualist, or doing this, or doing that. They only have the short, direct. But if you really then look into all the stories they tell you in all these books, most of these people, who are practicing this direct, fast, shortcut way. It only takes them six to eight years to get anywhere. <laughs> and I find that interesting. Because at one level, we're kind of excited by, oh yes, you know, there is something to be got, and you can get it quickly. But then if you look through the small print, actually, you see, actually, it takes some time. You know, you have to be patient. And I think that's what you want us to be careful again there. So very much to take the practice, very much one day at a time, 
one meditation at a time. And also I think if we came with such a patient mind, then, then we might be a- able to enjoy the journey so much more. Because if you constantly sit there, I want this to be moving, I want to achieve this, then actually you are not resting, you are not still, you are not in a way meditating as such, you are kind of more like expecting, wanting to force things. So you know, in a way, be careful of wanting to have a result and instead just be with the meditation as it is, good, bad or otherwise. And then what I wanted to introduce for the last day was the four Brahma Viharas. I mean, some of you might have heard about this before, might have done it, some of you maybe not. And personally, the four Brahma Viharas are also called as the four heavenly abodes. They can see that four qualities that we have innately. They are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And so there are qualities that we have skills, we have in us. But they again, also something that we can cultivate actively. And they're also something that is used as a technique of meditation. And at the technical level, I find it a very interesting method. Because together it combines, it combines concentration and inquiry. And so the way it works, for those who have not uh, heard so much about it, is that you generally repeat three or four sentences. And I'll describe them. And also I put uh, on the board, I put all the various versions of the sentences. And then, and maybe the basic formula, I can tell you, the basic formula is, uh, may I be happy, may I be at peace, may I be free from suffering. Personally, I think English-wise is the easiest one I can remember. So that's generally the one I use. But the idea is that there is these three sentences that you come back to again and again. You repeat again and again. And that, at the level of concentration, I think it's very good. Because you have these things you can come back to, which is relatively concrete, you can con- connect with. Then there is a movement in the meditation. You generally start by yourself, so you wish yourselves well. You say these sentences, may I be happy, may I be at peace. May I be free from suffering. But the idea when you say these sentences is to kind of also try to open your mind, your heart, to the human being who in this moment is suffering, wants to be happy, and you try to go beyond what you like and dislike about yourself. (coughs) And you reach out to the human being and you wish yourselves well. And then you move to people in this room, to seeing living outside, then you move to people you like, people you feel neutral toward, and people you don't like very much, or you dislike totally, or whatever. And personally, I mean, there are many different ways to do this, but I think it's kind of, often it's quite nice to, in a way, choose various people. So like going through as many people as we can in this room, think of as many people as we can that we like and saying the sentences for each person, visualizing each person. And the same neutral, kind of, you know, who who do I feel neutral toward? And then you realize there is this whole bunch of people you know, but you kind of don't really consider as such. That kind of this meditation helps you in a way to bring them to your mind. Maybe the shopkeeper, 
the pedestrian, the bus conductor, or whoever, a neighbor. And then you have the, the, often what people find the most difficult is the people you kind of dislike, you have problem with. So I mean, if you have terrible problem with them, don't choose them, because it might set you off. But maybe you could start by the one you kind of, you know, don't like so very much. You know, but not, not too badly so. And then later you might go to the one you really have difficulty with, if you have any of such people. And what I like about this practice is that at the level of inquiry, it works of the intention that for these 30 or 45 minutes, you are intending, in a way, to be loving, to be equanimous, to be compassionate, to be rejoicing in the happiness of others. And so at that level, it, it doesn't mean what we have to be careful with this practice, that you are not trying to produce certain feelings. Often people feel very disappointed. You know, they say the sentences and their heart doesn't feel much warmth and, you know, whatever. That's not the point. You're not trying to create any specific feeling anywhere. You might notice at the end of it that you feel a little more open, a little more spacious toward people. But you might not necessarily produce any specific feeling. So be careful of, again, the expectation you would bring to that. It's more at the level of intention. Again, cultivating a different groove in the, groove in the mind that you are intending to be loving to be compassionate, to be equanimous, to rejoice. And because for 40 minutes you try to do this, this leaves an imprint in the mind. And I think this then can have a certain effect. And what was in, 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 uh, in, interesting once, what I did in a, I did this in Findon, in a, this uh, New Age place, uh, alternative place in Scotland. And I was working with the people who were uh, working there, the community, not people who came to the retreat. And so they, they, they had, you know, they have a big community, they have hundreds, they live with about 100 people and they work together and as usual there is kind of conflict and all kind of things goes on. Every time I go there there's something different going on. It's fascinating. And uh, what was it? but they continue, that's what I like, they continue, steadily they continue, no matter what happens. It's wonderful to see. And uh, once I did this with them, and all, all of them reported at the end of the day, and they said, oh yes, at the beginning of the day, the list of, of like was very small, and the list of dislike was very big. But by the end of the day, all the ones in dislike kind of had gone up to like. <laughs> and it was interesting, that over the day they did it, they all reported that it kind of, they all gradually moved up. And I found that interesting. It kind of showed the effect of in a way, again, inquiry is about not kind of not consciously, in a way, changing something, but about putting one mind on certain things unconsciously to help us to dissolve the grasping or to start to see things in a different way. So these four Brahma Viharas, these four qualities. The first one is known as metta. And that's why this is called metta meditation. And this is loving kindness. And what is interesting about loving-kindness is that the Buddha uh, first did it as an antidote to fear. That's very interesting. The, there were these monks who were practicing in the forest at night by themselves, you know, in the middle of the jungle in India 2,500 years ago. And so they were very frightened, you know, the tigers, I don't know what not in those days, and bandits. And so they went to the Buddha and said, Buddha, Buddha, we really, we want to sit in meditation deep in the forest, 
but we're really so afraid, you know, we can't concentrate. <laughs> and what can we do? And then he told them, do metta meditation, you know, just recite the sentences. And he saw it, and it's true, as an antidote to fear, because generally if you're afraid, you're afraid that there is something out there who is going to get you. You know, that actually we often have this feeling that the world is a dangerous place. I mean, sometimes it is, no doubt, you know, in some places you wouldn't want to be there and sitting, you know, May you'll be happy and they come and clobber you. That's not <laughs> what I'm talking about. No, but in general terms, generally, you know, in general terms, especially uh, here in England, it's relatively safe. And, but still there is this feeling that, you know, I must protect myself, that there is somebody out there coming to get me, that, you know, they are reaching for me. There is this strange fear we have. And I think this loving kindness actually wishing well to ourselves, wishing well to others, and realizing that actually the world, in general, is a relatively benign place, especially uh, around us, especially on this uh, nice summer day. And so I think it kind of counteracts, is an antidote to this instinctive fear we have when we feel that we are so isolated, separate. I think this loving kindness can open us to the world. Oh yes, there is people out there, and they're just like myself wanting to be happy and suffering. Also, very much the Buddha said that loving-kindness was uh, an antidote to ill-will and anger. But actually, it had an effect. You know, if one has a temperament, when one gets easily irritated or kind of, you know, wanting revenge and things like that, that it would actually have a little drip-drip effect on this. If you wished well to people, if you brought people in your mind, and that's why I think it's important to not think of it in the abstract. Because, of course, at the end, you can say, may all beings be happy. And I think it kind of opens your heart to the whole world. But that, at the same time, is a little abstract. And that's why it's good to choose people we know we can consider. And then they come into our mind. And then possibly it might start to dissolve a little. It's possibly this feeling of ill will or anger. The next one is compassion, and I talked a little about uh, yesterday. And the sentences for compassion are, so again you start, may I, and then you go to may you, and it's, may I or you be free from pain, may I or you be free from sorrow, may I or you be free from danger. So in a way it's kind of, through that practice I think it allows us to consider, to see that yes, they are, they are suffering in the world. They're, yes, people are kind of, we have difficulty, other people have difficulty. And in a way, through this cultivation, kind of accepting that, yes, it is so, and it is painful, but at the same time, I wish, you know, that you, you will be free from it, that it will not kind of continue so much. And I think it's kind of being with that suffering, accepting it, and at the same time, opening to it, and also hoping that it will not uh, continue. And that, the Buddha says, it is an antidote to cruelty and to the desire to hurt. Because sometimes, I mean, generally we are quite nice people, but sometimes it's interesting to look in our mind, and you know, we really want to get this, this guy, and, you know, we really want to go for them. And, and, and we think of, it's interesting, we think of all these little twists and turns, how we, we don't say cruelty to ourselves, but actually that's what we kind of plot it in our mind, you know the best way to really get them, because they got me and they can't get away with it, or whatever it is we think about. And, so, and, and sometimes there is some 
I think sometimes we might have a tendency to to be master or mistresses of the snide remark. It's interesting. And we say, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. But I think the snide remark is very painful to yourself and to others. And it seems to me that possibly compassion there possibly could help us to become aware of the effect of our words, that we might be causing suffering. And so if we want somebody to be free from suffering, then maybe we want to dissolve the causes and the conditions for uh, having suffering for ourselves or others. Then the next one is sympathetic joy, also known as uh, mudita. And I like this one very much. I think this is a great one that we kind of, we don't think much about, but I think it could be quite important to really cultivate too. And the sentences are, may my or your happiness not leave me or you, may my or your good fortune not diminish, may my or your joy continue. And I think first, when it's for us, May I, my happiness not leave me. May my good fortune not diminish. May my joy continue. I think at that level is to make us realize that there is some joy, there is some happiness, there is some good fortune in our life. Because I think we have such a tendency to be negative. It's something we receive neg- negative things so strongly, so easily, but often we don't really appreciate what is good in our life. And I think this, you know, it would allow us will enable us to see that, to be with that. And at the same time, I think there is a slight, of course, we want people to be happy. Of course we do, we do, we do. However, (laughs) not too happy. (laughs) No? We don't want them to have too much good fortune. And it's very interesting, you know, consider when somebody comes to you and they have this great piece of news. You know, that is wonderful what is happening to them. And what do you do? A lot of the time you say, well, what about this? What about that? And by then they're totally deflated. <laughs> and they really wonder if, you know, you are their friends or not. You know? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Instead of saying, wow, this is great, this is wonderful. And kind of, in a way, the fact that they have this great joy can actually make us joyous too. But I think we have a tendency to deflate them because there is a slight feeling, two things, that it's a bit unfair that they got it and I have not got it. <laughs> this is very compassionate attitude. And second, I think there is this fear that there is only so much happiness in the world. And if they get a big bunch of it, then mine is going to be so much smaller. You know, they've got it. You know, they were got stuff in the line. When actually, you know, there is no such line. And actually, what if we really reflect Joy, as it, if you accept joy and rejoice in it, actually it spreads, it causes more of it. So instead of being seen as, you know, oh, there'll be less of it, realizing actually there'll be more of it. And to me that's why this, uh, this kind of sympathetic joy, I think, is a good idea to kind of help us to notice when we do this and to help us to not do it so much or not at all and to learn to rejoice in our happiness. Often you see we have a good something good happens to us and what we and what do we say? We say, not bad, but it could be better. Could not it, you know? I mean, they've got a bigger one. I've got this one, you know, that Christmas present, isn't it? You know? Oh that's not bad, buy one there. You know? So the Buddha also says that sympathetic joy actually 
with an antidote to apathy and indifference. So that is kind of, it's so that, you know, there is feeling, there is joy, there is happiness. This path is not kind of dour and kind of, you know, gloomy. You know, he thought that it was important to feel joy, to feel happiness. I think this is vital. Because actually, when we are happy, we are so much nicer people anyway, you know. So I would recommend it. If you can. Then, we have the fourth one, which is equanimity. And equanimity, I think, is, um, is not often practiced. Because generally you do meta, you might go a little down to, uh, to uh, karuna, compassion, possibly mudita, but very few people actually do the practice of upeka, of equanimity, as a kind of a technique. But I, find, I, I think it's a very interesting one to look at, because equanimity is really there to help our joy, our compassion, our love, to be in balance, to be, we deeply feel it, but we are not disturbed by it, we are not shaken by it. In a way, again, there is this rest, resting, stillness, feeling in it. And I think that's what equanimity helps us to do. And the sentences, actually, they are, they are kind of difficult, the sentences, to find just the right one, because they get a little complicated, and then you have to remember the whole thing. See the problem with these sentences, you know, trying to remember them. So again, with these sentences, try to create, to say them in, the, in your own language, if you don't uh, generally speak English, but also try to do it in a way that you can remember them and are not kind of, you know, complicating matters. You sit there, you know, is it this way, is it that way? So there is three versions. I put up three versions, uh, just as a kind of a pointer. The first version, I thought, could be more applicable to us. You know, when we think about ourselves and we try to cultivate equanimity, then we could say these sentences. May I accept things as they are. May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. May I be open and balanced. And then, as we often say that in the equanimity, you try to be a little more neutral. So that's why they generally change the you for the we. And so then when you go through the people around you, outside, that you like, that you feel neutral, that you dislike, then to go to do sentences with we. And then you, that's the sentences. May we accept things as they are. May we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of event. I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. And I think this is interesting at the level of compassion. Because sometimes we feel compassion, we want to help people. And then we sit there and we get really resentful because they're not changing. We give them all this good advice and we do this and that and they're not changing. And you kind of get, you know, <clears throat> what's the point? And actually I think what this is leading to is that compassion sometimes can have results. And sometimes you are compassionate and there is no result. But because there is no result, it doesn't mean that you won't be compassionate. I think that's why, at that level, the equanimity sentences makes us reflect on that fact. That we can be there for people, we can try to help, but we cannot do the changing for them. We have to accept them just as they are, because maybe the change they can do is so minute. But for them it's a big change, even if we think it's a minute one. And the last one, I think, is just in terms of a possibly uh, cause and effect, I think it can be useful. All beings are the owners of their actions. I care for them, but cannot force them to change. 
may all beings find equanimity and peace. So, you know, we're trying to see if any of these could be helpful and if uh, you could uh, use them. That's what I'll plan to do this uh, afternoon. I would plan to do the equanimity guided meditation. Then I thought tomorrow, when we do the last uh, sitting together in the morning uh, at 10 o'clock, then I would do the metta, loving-kindness meditation. And the Buddha said actually that equanimity is an antidote to resentment. And resentment, I think, is a very interesting Buddhist emotion. Because I think a lot of the time when you are either on the Buddhist path or meditator or on the spiritual, then you know you hear all these bad things about angers and big emotions and you think, you know, I must not be angry. So instead of being angry, then you become resentful. You know? And it's very interesting. But I think often in Buddhist circles, there is no over anger, but there is a lot of seizing resentment. <laughs> and personally, I don't think that you know, one is better than the other. Because if you have seizing resentment, then that's where the snide remarks is going to come f- from. And so I think at that level, equanimity can help us to see you know, that <coughs> why? Do I become, do I, am I irritated? What is going on? It kind of, you know, it kind of trying to kind of look into the condition. I think to me it will help that. And then to see, you know, the different emotions. How am I disturbed? What is feeling? What is disturbing emotion? And how can I stay with feeling without moving into disturbing emotion? And if I am in disturbing emotion, what is the effect of it? What are the conditions of it? And it seems to me equanimity allows us a little to put some space within it. Because I think, in a way, what is the most interesting thing is that if we have pleasant sensation or pleasant thing happen to us, we generally have no problem with that. And I rarely have people come to me in interview telling me, you know, I have really this pleasant thing happening to me, it's really bothering me, you know. They don't say that. But a lot of the time, people or myself, as soon as something is unpleasant, I don't want it. It is unpleasant. I mean, we have this immediate reaction. It's painful, it's unpleasant, I don't want it. And actually, I think equanimity allows us to see, okay, there is unpleasantness. This is, you know, you can't have pleasant things all the time. Again, you know, permanence doesn't work that way. Things are impermanent. Pleasant is impermanent. Unpleasant is impermanent. Isn't that great that unpleasant is impermanent? You know? so, and so in a way, to me, this is actually the bottom line of the practice. What do we do with unpleasant feelings, thought, emotion, event, conditions? What happens? Generally, we don't want them. And then we go into all kinds, there is all kinds of things we do to avoid them, to explain them, to etc. Fall into them or whatever. I'm not saying that we should not have them or not react, but I think equanimity really can help us to be with it in a different way and also to weaken the length we will be actually disturbed for whatever is unpleasant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.